2 Corinthians chapter 5, but before we read, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for your love for us, and thank you for this day. What a wonderful day it is, Lord. An extra hour of sleep, plenty of sunshine, good fellowship, good folks around us, and now we have the chance to worship you and study your word. Lord, may we, may we grow from this time, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged, and may we get a glimpse and a and a vision, Lord, for what you want to do in the world today and how you want to use us in that mission. Lord, we're excited about you and about your plans and your purposes. We want to be a part of it. Lord, we ask that you bless this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, we're told, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. In the desert north of Tucson, Arizona, sits a sealed terrarium the size of two and a half football fields. It covers more than three acres. It's known as Biosphere 2. In the early 1990s, it served as an environmental research laboratory. You see, inside the glass structure, scientists simulated the Earth's various ecosystems. The dome was supposed to be totally self-contained. The intention was to recycle its own air and its own food and its own water and its own waste. It was to be the earth inside of a bottle. Eight scientists entered the bubble in 1991 and they emerged in 1993. They spent two years together with no personal contact from the outside world. Unfortunately, Biosphere 2 had some problems. It seems that a totally sealed environment was difficult to maintain. Oh, they should have consulted the church. For sadly, we Christians have mastered the art of living in self-contained bubbles. We're notorious for constructing artificial environments where we seal ourselves off from the rest of the world. You see, here's what happens over time. All of our friends are Christians. All of our activities are either at church or with church members. We work around non-Christians, but we keep social contact to a minimum. We recycle relationships. We're with the same people over and over. We're so busy in church that we've got no time to reach out. Hey, I pastor a church. I'm all for good Christian fellowship, but I'm going to live forever with you guys There's a world out there that's going to spend eternity vacationing on the lake of fire if we don't get them to Jesus. Well, granted, it's not easy getting involved with people who are mired in sin. It's messy, and it's taxing, and it can be awkward at times. It demands a lot of love and effort and thought and patience and prayer and empathy. But never forget that none other than our Lord Jesus himself was called a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with the people who had hang-ups. And you and I have been called to follow in his footsteps. We've been called to be fishers of men, 
not keepers of the aquarium. You see, it's a lot easier to build walls than it is to build bridges. It's a lot easier to reach in than it is to reach out. We forget that we were once lost without Christ ourselves, yet someone made the effort to care about us. Always remember, the gospel is not something we go to church to hear. It's something we go from church to tell. Well, in our text here this morning, Paul tells us that God has given to each of us a ministry. If you've been trying to discover your ministry, take heart. Look no further. Each of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation. You see, ours is the glorious task of placing the hand of man into the hand of God, of leading broken, empty, shipwrecked souls into a meaningful relationship with the Savior. The word translated reconciliation here in 2 Corinthians means to exchange. It's an old Greek word for exchanging coins. And as Christians, we are exchange agents. We arrange swaps, royal robes for sinful rags, Forgiveness for fear, love for loneliness, fulfillment for frustration, hope for hollowness, peace for pain. Our job is to get good news to folks who've had only bad news. You see, the work of reconciliation is the reason God sacrificed his only son. It's the reason Jesus endured the horrors of the cross and spilt sinless blood. Reconciliation is God's work. And it's our privilege to participate. I've heard it said, if a man has a soul, and he has, and if that soul can be won or lost for eternity, and it can, then the most important thing in the world is to bring that man to Jesus Christ. Vance Havner used to say that you can cut Christianity anywhere, and it will bleed reconciliation. This is what God is doing in our world today. He's reconciling sinners, and he wants us He wants to use you and me. If we want to be strategically involved in a high-stakes mission, then we need to become ministers of reconciliation. Notice our text never says that God needs to be reconciled to us. You see, it's us that need to be reconciled to God. God isn't angry or hostile with us. He doesn't carry a grudge. God's fist isn't clenched. God is ready to bury the hatchet. We're the ones who have been standoffish toward God, not vice versa. God's issues with us were satisfied by Jesus on the cross. Today, his desire for you is to forgive you, to restore you if you are willing. Paul tells the Corinthians, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Understand God loves the people that you despise. You know, God takes no pleasure in their pain or in their failure. I've got to admit that I would have really enjoyed for the dogs to beat Florida yesterday and not just beat them, but to kill them, to whoop them, to run up the score. That's our tendency. We we take pleasure in our enemy's pain. God's only intention, though, is to pardon and to help, and to bless. You know, we like to watch our enemies squirm a little, and sweat a little, and suffer a little. We don't just enjoy them beating the opponent. We want to see the whipping. This isn't how God thinks. 
God loves people. He loves even the people that you despise. And this is not how we should represent God. Remember when the prodigal son returned home with a repentant heart, his father didn't make him do penance or serve probation. No, the boy didn't even have to pay back the money he had wasted. The father's forgiveness was full and it was free. And God's forgiveness toward lost humanity is just as lavish. Tori Matthews works for the Southern California Humane Society. One day she got a frantic call from a child whose pet iguana had drowned. A dog frightened the iguana up a tree. He had climbed out on a limb and he had fell into the swimming pool. When Officer Matthews arrived, the little boy was next to the pool crying. His pet lizard lay motionless under the water. Well, Tori dove into the pool. And she emerged with this lifeless iguana. She thought, well, you can resuscitate a person and you can resuscitate a dog. Why not an iguana? And so she locked lips with the lizard. And she revived the pet. And afterwards, Tori commented, it's a pretty ugly animal to kiss. But the last thing I wanted to do was tell this little boy that his iguana had died. Well, you know, there are people in your life that are just as ugly and nasty and scaly and repugnant as an iguana. Their lifestyle and their attitude stands for everything you're against. And extending love and concern to them would be like kissing a lizard. But if the last thing that Tori Matthews wanted to do was tell a little boy that his pet had died... Think of what it'll be like for us to have to tell God that the people he loved, that the folks Jesus died to reconcile drowned because we were afraid to get close to them. We have been called by God to kiss lizards. Lizard kissing is the ministry of reconciliation. In our text, Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. You see, an ambassador is a spokesman for his homeland living in a foreign land. He represents the interests of home in an alien culture. And we too are ambassadors. Our citizenship is in heaven, yet we're serving here on earth. You represent the will of your king while occupying a foreign post. You see, a Christian is God's spokesperson. The church is his embassy. We are divine diplomats. And understand, two traits make for a good ambassador. First, he represents only the will of his king. He's just the microphone, not the singer. When he speaks, he doesn't interject his own opinions. And then second, he relates well to the people to which he's been sent. Paul says God is in us, pleading with humanity to be reconciled. The term pleading means to come alongside, to slip into somebody else's shoes. God does more than just shout to mankind to toe the line. He identifies with our struggles and he empathizes with our weaknesses. He relates to us. This is the reason Jesus left his box seat in heaven and joined the ranks of humanity. He wanted to feel our struggle from ground level. I mean, when Jesus communicated, he spoke only the words of his father, only the words that his father gave him. But he always packaged those words and couched those words in ways that appealed to hungry hearts and stirred up interest in his listeners. 
You see, the job of an ambassador is not just to represent heaven. It's more than uttering cold, matter-of-fact declarations. No, a good ambassador for Christ packages the will of heaven in a way that appeals to men. He or she relates to the culture around them. It makes the message as clear and as attractive as possible. A good ambassador presents the truth, but in ways that increase the likelihood of its acceptance. Afghanistan's ambassador to the United States is a man named Saeed Jawad. Notice in the picture there, he's not wearing a traditional Arab headdress. Nor does he have a beard. Nor does he have an AK-47 slung over his shoulder. He looks like a typical American businessman, not a nomad off the back of a camel. His image is designed to encourage us to buy his rhetoric. You see, an ambassador is shrewd. He's not deceptive necessarily, but he's shrewd. He knows his audience. And he deliberately appeals to its tastes and its needs and its logic and its style. This is how Paul behaved. He was an ambassador for Christ. In, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul reveals his diplomatic strategy. He says this, To the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. In other words, Paul built bridges. He looked for ways to identify with people. If he was with a Jew, he would talk the Torah. He would eat kosher food. If he was with Gentiles, he'd have a hot dog. Probably discuss some Greek philosophy, maybe even talk about the Olympics. If Paul was with a person fraught with fear, he would open up and share his own insecurities. If he was with a proud person in need of humility, then he would confess the foolishness of the self-confidence he once flaunted. Paul was not deceitful, but Paul was flexible. He knew his audience, and he looked for common ground. He could adjust his interest to reach his listeners. All too often, we Christians, we focus on our differences with non-Christians as if there were no commonalities, as if Christians and non-Christians lived on different planets. Well, it's true, our spiritual state is as different as night and day, but we both have a mortgage to pay and a lawn to mow and cars to repair and kids to raise and a less than perfect marriage that we're working on. You see, by focusing on our similarities, we can build a relationship with people that will ultimately produce an opportunity to explain our differences. Paul was always looking for a shared interest around which he could develop a friendship. He he was always trying to blend in so he could speak out. If he could relate culturally, he stood a better chance of reaching that person spiritually. You know, over the 31 years that I've been a Christian... I've noticed that it's usually the biker who wins his fellow biker to Christ. And it's usually the yuppie who wins his fellow yuppie to Christ. Seldom do you see a biker win a yuppie to Jesus or a yuppie win a biker. It can happen, but it's not likely. It's the electrician who wins the electrician. It's the hip-hop homeboy who wins the hip-hop homeboy. 
It's the jock who relates and wins the jock. It's the housewife that wins over the housewife. Folks open up to the person that they believe understands their situation and can identify with their perspective. You know, ironically, Christians will fly to another country or they'll drive to a different part of town to witness for Jesus. But the folks that are most likely to listen to you are the people who live on your block and go to your school or play on your team or work at your job. Understand the people with whom you have the most in common are those who are most likely for you to reach. You see, an ambassador's job most closely parallels the job of an interpreter. You see, an interpreter is fluent in two languages. He speaks the language of the speaker, but then also the language of the listener. If he's deficient in one or the other, the communication gets muddled. And a Christian is an interpreter. It's our job to interpret heaven's truths into the language of earth. And to do an effective job, you have to be proficient in both languages. You've got to speak the language of heaven, but you've also got to do it in an earthly dialect. You see, this is what we're trying to do here at Calvary Chapel. With our music, with our teaching, and with the building, and with our children and youth ministries, with all our interactions, we want to be contemporary and relevant to the people within our culture. You know, sometimes people will complain, well, we never sing the hymns. I understand your desire. Hymns are rich in theology. But here's the problem. You have to be a Christian for a while to learn the terms and the concepts that fill those hymns. In the beginning, hymns are just old-fashioned songs with stuffy lyrics. Here's my point. If we're all about Christians being comfortable, well, then fine, just sing the hymns. But if we're about relating to lost people, in presenting truth in a relevant manner, we'll want to use more contemporary music. Again, an ambassador has to be fluent in both the language of heaven and the language of earth. And yet this is not as easy as it might seem. You know, some Christians know very little of the language of heaven. They've sort of lost touch with God's truth and God's perspective and God's passion for people. You know, they've forgotten the message of heaven. They preach condemnation, not reconciliation. Their message is a legalistic gospel or a social gospel or a politicized gospel. Their emphasis is no longer Christ and his cross. Others lose touch with the motive of heaven. There's no love. There's no grace in their voice. Oh, their words are right, but their tone is harsh. And still other Christians, they've lost touch with the methods of heaven. They manipulate rather than minister. They pressure rather than serve. You see, it's easy to lose our connection with home. We get so busy serving the Lord that we get out of sync with the heart of the Lord that we serve. Once there was an eight-year-old big sis who was witnessing to her little brother. She barked at him. She grabbed him. She pushed him down. She said, now sit still because this is scary. When you die, do you want to go to heaven to be with Jesus and God and the apostles and the angels and your mom and your dad and your big sister? Or do you want to go to the lake of fire to be with the devil and all the bank robbers? The little boy thought it over for a few minutes and and then he responded. He said, I think I'd rather stay right here. You know, sometimes our approach can get a little heavy handed. We lack love. 
folks are moved by our message, all right. They get up and they walk out. But while certain Christians forget the language of heaven, other Christians have forgotten how to speak the language of earth. They've become so isolated in that little Christian bubble that they have trouble relating to the lost people around them. You know, some of us are so used to living on the Christian compound that we've lost touch with the struggles of those who don't know Jesus and who lack his resources. As an ambassador, yes, I need to stay in touch with home, but I also have to relate to the trends and the ideas of the land to which I've been dispatched. So what if I stay squeaky clean, keep all my spiritual ducks in a row? If I don't reach folks, what have I accomplished? As a Christian, the point is not just to be good, it's to be good for something. The goal is to reach the hearts of people. The gospel is to be shared, not just dissected for theological fun on Sunday mornings. God is pleading through us, and it's up to us to get the message across. Donald G. was a godly Pentecostal pastor who had a heart to reach people. And he remembers a particular church meeting where a young Christian lady was speaking to a crowd of rowdy, roughneck thugs. And he says she kept calling them dear ones. Dear ones this, dear ones that. When these men were anything but dear ones. Donald G. writes, She had lived in the sugary sweet atmosphere of Pentecostal prayer meetings and had lost contact with the world. That's what's happened to many Christians. In reference to Christians like this woman, Donald G. writes, it's possible to live such an otherworldly life and be very spiritual, but not a scrap of good as an interpreter because you've gotten out of touch with men. It happens. When church becomes a spiritual bunker and we close ourselves off to the rest of the world, We stop coming across real to the people around us. We seem plastic and artificial to outsiders. And the church loses its voice. In Titus chapter 2 verse 14, Paul calls us a peculiar people. The word peculiar is an old King James word which means different or special. Christians are to be different but in an attractive way. In how we treat each other and the love we show. In our outlook on life, our our positive outlook, the hope that we have. In our business practices, our honesty and our integrity. In, In our priorities and in our values. In the joy we possess. The Bible tells us to be different. But it doesn't tell us to be peculiar in the sense of being weird or odd or eccentric. And yet there are some Christians who use Titus 2.14 to justify being a cultural geek. They hold on to traditions that alienate them from society's mainstream. And they say they're just being a peculiar person. In reality, they're being just plain weird. That's what they're being. You know, I grew up in a church that thought being holy and being separate from the world involved how you dressed or looked or talked, all physical distinctions. And so while all my friends were growing their hair long and wearing bell-bottom jeans, I used to walk around with a crew cut and peg-leg slacks. I was told I was being spiritual, but I looked weird. And worse, I was out of touch. And I was effectively alienating the folks that I should have been reaching. You see, Jesus told us, 
He told his disciples to be in the world, but not of the world. We're in this world. Stylishly and culturally, we should fit in, not stick out. But don't be of the world. Morally and spiritually, this is where we need to stick out, not fit in. You know, as a kid, I had the impression that Christians distinguished themselves by the lingo that they used. That in the church, I grew up with people who always referred to each other as brother or sister so-and-so. You know, even as a kid, I, I remembered how unnatural and how strange it sounded when someone shouted to someone else on the street, Hey, Brother Bob! You know, I believe in the brotherhood of believers. But at home, I never called my natural brother, Brother Ken. It seems so unnatural. Trust me, my kids don't walk around our house saying, Hey, Brother Nick. Well, hello there, Brother Mac. Sounds hokey. As a father, there's no satisfaction in my sons calling each other brother unless they love each other and treat each other like brothers. And God feels the same way, I'm sure, about his kids. And this brings up a bigger issue. Over time, Christians can develop their own vocabulary that only they can decipher. It's like our own little language. Call it Christianese. I like this article. It's called, They Speak With Other Tongues. Ever been saved? A wide-eyed fellow startled me as we waited for the bus. Sure, I said. When I was nine, I was swimming, and a strong undertow drug me out to sea. My uncle heard my cry for help, and no, no, he interrupted. Redeemed. Have you ever been redeemed? You know, reborn. Washed in the blood. I said, what in the world are you talking about? Convicted, man. Have you ever felt convicted? Of course not, I replied. I've never been in trouble with the law. He looked me square in the eye. I think you need to be delivered. Delivered? I'm just waiting to ride the bus home. I'll stick with that, thank you. He looked at me as if I was speaking another language. One day, this fellow invited me to lunch. He seemed harmless, so I agreed. But he was definitely unusual and difficult to understand. That Wednesday, I had lunch with Ed. He was a little late, but explained that he was having a quiet time. Quiet time, I asked. What do you mean? He said, well, each day just before lunch, I go into my prayer closet. I was puzzled. Do you, do you pray in a closet at work? He answered, no, no, it's in my car. You have a closet in your car? He changed the subject. Like the first day I met him, he left me confused. This Ed is quite a unique fellow. As we parted, Ed gave me a little booklet that explained how someone could come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I read it and understood it and knew this was exactly what I needed. That night, I gave my life to Jesus, and I was born again, as it stated in the booklet. Two days later, I told Ed he was overjoyed. The following week, we got together again, and Ed strongly urged me to find a good body. I was surprised at his suggestion. But it sounded good to me. I started combing the local health clubs looking for an attractive woman. When I met Denise, I knew she was the one. She soon became a believer, and Ed told us we needed to get planted so we could grow together. Sometimes it's hard to understand this guy, I confided to Denise. I wasn't sure what Ed meant when he told us that we needed to be planted. 
He replied, committed. You both need to be committed now that you know Jesus. Now, wait a minute, I protested. Trusting Jesus is the most sane thing I've ever done in my life. It was obvious Ed's patience was growing thin. I had to miss church the next Sunday, but Ed and I had breakfast Monday morning, and he filled me in on what had happened. God moved, he said with excitement. God really moved yesterday. Where is he now, I pleaded. I was just getting to know him, and now he's gone. No, no, Bob, God hasn't gone anywhere. I was relieved. It's just that so many people were plugging in and stepping out and moving in the gifts. You mean people were leaving the meeting? And what's this about presence? No, it's the gifts, Bob. The gifts were flowing. How beautiful. Folks were giving presents to each other. Man, I wish I had been there. Now Ed seemed confused. Anyway, anyway, he said, changing the subject, Denise was there. And boy, was she on fire. Fire? Denise got burned? Is she okay? No, Bob, you don't understand. That was an understatement. Denise is just fine. Ed sighed. Can I walk in the light with you? Where do you want to go? Of course you can walk in the light. It's daytime, Ed. Ed just shook his head. Sometimes we don't communicate very well. He says, it's been over two years since I was saved and delivered. I'm plugged in, planted, and committed to a good body. God is moving, and I've been stepping out in the gifts, but I've developed one new problem. My old friends no longer understand me. I share about my redemption, that I've been washed as white as snow, that I follow the Lamb, yet they tune me out. I guess they're just convicted when they see that I'm on fire. (laughs) Hey, we can alienate folks by the lingo that we use. You know, when I speak to unbelievers, I I try to avoid religious cliches and buzzwords. I want to be understood. You know, we can also alienate unbelievers by weird practices. I had a friend once who every time he saw me, he insisted on hugging me no matter where we were, even when we were in a public place. And, And I want you to understand, I don't mind hugs. Christians hugging each other is a okay with me. In the proper environment, here at church, where people understand the practice, a hug is a meaningful expression. But here's what I found with my buddy. In a midtown Atlanta restaurant where people are watching, two dudes hugging each other isn't interpreted as wonderful Christian fellowship. That's not how it's seen. My point is, is that as Christians, we need to be as natural and as respectful to the social mores around us that govern normal behavior. When we do stuff that people interpret as weird, it only drives them away from the message that they need to receive and that we want to give them. You see, an ambassador is a bridge builder. We represent God and we relate to people. We stand between two parties and we provide a bridge. In the Old Testament, the the priests were called bridge builders. They stood between God and man. In fact, the Latin word priest means bridge builder. Hebrews 2 verse 17 tells us that Jesus was the ultimate priest. And here's why. For he was both, quote, merciful and faithful. This is what makes for a good priest. He's merciful. In other words, he feels our troubles, but he's faithful. He won't betray God's truth. And this is our problem. We tend to go to extremes. At times, we're so merciful that we give the impression that God condones sin. 
At other times, we're so faithful that we give the assumption that he condemns sinners. Well, neither is true. God isn't a legalist, nor is he a liberal. He is a lover. God loves humanity, and he also loves the truth. God always strikes the proper balance. At Calvary Chapel, we bring the changeless gospel to a changing world. God's truth never changes. And so we want to be faithful. But the world around us is always changing. Thus, we need to be flexible. We convey God's timeless truths in a timely manner. And as heaven's interpreter, we need to be fluent in both languages. Let's be biblical and relatable. Let's be in touch with God and in touch with the people around us. But perhaps there's a more basic question that we should ask ourselves this morning. Do we even care? Do we even give a hoot about the hordes of people dying and going to hell around us? Or do we just sit comfortably in our Christian biospheres? We're just happy in the Christian bubble, insulated from needs, oblivious to pain, just sort of enjoying each other. Here's my question to you this morning. How many lizards have you kissed lately? God loves the lizards that you work with and that you live with and that you go to school with and that you play ball with. And he's given us the task of getting out and reviving some iguanas. This is the ministry of reconciliation. It's all about kissing lizards. As Paul puts it, God is in Christ dying to save mankind and God is in you pleading for men to be saved. You have a ministry. It's very clear. God has given each of us a ministry. It's called the ministry of reconciliation.